0: Welcome to the Vortex Nation podcast brought to you by lovers of hunting, shooting, public lands,
1: the Second Amendment, and good food. All right, what's going on, everybody? I am super pumped about our upcoming podcast. I don't have Jim with me. Uh, it's like losing a damn limb, I tell you, but I'm still super excited about what we're going to talk about today. I've got my pen handy. I've got my notepad out. I am ready to rock and roll and learn a lot because we've got the dream team here. We've got Ryan Lampers and Remy Warren. And we're going to be talking about a subject that I'm pretty confident is near and dear to their hearts. And that's early season archery mule deer. When we were first talking about kicking this off, we we're like, oh, we're going to do everything mule deer. And then once it got to thinking about it, it's like, whoa, that is that is a broad topic. That would be like 19 different podcasts. It'd be the best podcast ever, but uh, might get a little long. So we'd, we've narrowed the scope, and we're going, uh, like I said, early season, archery, mule deer, a uh, really cool hunt, actually a hunt that I've never done, hence my note-taking that's about to take place, but um, always been on the radar, and I think there's a lot of pluses to it and basically this is where i jump off and let you guys just start talking about it <laughs> so but but i guess you know just to kick it off i mean what for those who may not know let's have you guys introduce yourselves a little bit and and if, if they don't know they can crawl out from under under that rock and get a little sunlight but let's uh Ryan we'll start from you we'll go right to left at least my right and maybe tell people a little bit about uh who you are and, and kind of what you got going on sure
2: yeah i'm Ryan Lampers If there's one of us that people don't know, it's going to be me. I think everybody knows Remy (laughs) Warren. But, uh, yeah, gosh, Lifelong Hunter. My wife and I, we do a podcast called Hunt Harvest Health. Uh, One of my biggest passions is food, hunting, gardening, and everything in that realm. And, uh, yeah, we're here talking about mule deer today, and that is by far my favorite. There's just something about mule deer that is in my blood. I absolutely love hunting from early season Archery to mid season to late season. I just love every aspect of mule deer and a whole host of different states. So, um, Washington native. I now reside in Montana. I feel like I've upgraded significantly. <laughs> I've got a few more options living in Montana now that I'm there. So, yeah. In a nutshell, I'm just absolutely love hunting, but specifically love mule deer hunting.
1: That's all, I mean I know like whenever I talk to you about mule deer, like you love. Love mule deer hunting, which I I I do want to ask because we're both Washington natives from the west side of the state. How did how did it not become blacktails?
2: Did (laughs) did you ever chase blacktails while you're over there? I know I I get questions all the time about uh, how was the blacktail hunting, and I I, like I feel a little guilty, like I should know this, right? But I've never been a blacktail guy. When my dad first started me out, it was a little bit of blacktail hunting, but it was a whole lot of bird hunting. And uh, honestly, I didn't kill my first deer, deer till I was 14 years old, and it happened to be that one trip where my dad was like, "All right, everything in the truck." We headed east of the mountains in Washington, up and over the Cascades, and it would happen to be a mule deer trip in a wilderness area. And, okay. Uh, and I got I got my first buck. It was a small four point. Uh, it's, a, it's a crazy story how that all came to be. I probably shouldn't even be here today to tell the story, <laughs> but. Uh, it felt like a giant to me. It was just a little tiny four point that I got. I ended up getting lost. Miraculously I I got helped where I, you know, I was found in the wilderness and, and they directed me out of there. So that was my first intro to Mule Deer hunting and um, being lost and all that didn't deter me, but that was just for whatever reason I fell in love with Mule Deer. I just couldn't get myself to burn a tag on Blacktail. As much as I respect Blacktail and the guys that hunt those, because I know it's super difficult. Something about the terrain where Mule Deer are that uh, I absolutely love versus the jungle of blackwell <laughs> <laughs> Cool, man. Cool, Remy. Yeah, I'm Remy, and
0: I've been. Sorry, everyone gave me like this weird look. They're like, "Wait, are you really Remy?" <laughs> um, <laughs> I was checking this out. I couldn't. Oh. I couldn't hear you there for a sec. So gotcha. sorry, sorry. No worries. Yeah. So I do a lot of different stuff. I write for some magazines, Western Hunter Magazine, do the Solo Hunter TV show. You find that on Amazon now and a lot of people see it on YouTube. People see stuff different places, so YouTube, wherever. Do a little podcast, Cutting the Distance podcast. And yeah, I grew up in Nevada and Nevada, your only option is mule deer. And so when I grew up hunting, I mean, I just, I love it. But one thing that I'm really passionate about is early season mule deer hunting. And I think it's partially uh, kind of like Ryan was saying it's mostly because of the terrain and early season, you get a hunt them in the Alpine, you get a hunt them. Just it's, it's such a cool hunt that if, if someone's like, yeah, you can only hunt one thing, one hunt for the rest of your life, that would be on the top of that list. Now it'd be a very hard thing to decide between a few different things, but archery season, early season, Nevada mule deer or high country mule deer anywhere that's got to be right up there at number one.
1: I mean, that's saying a lot because, I mean, you've been around North America extensively around the world pretty much, you know, to my knowledge. And to, like you said, I mean, for heaven's sake, you know, like you said, people ask you to narrow the scope and it's a pretty impossible task. But so I think that's that's definitely saying something for both you guys to be like, to be able to, to narrow it down to kind of that finite of a point and be like, no, these things are that
2: awesome. Like if I was going to pick it, that's it. I like hearing Remy say that because that's like affirmation because I try to convince people about like the beauty of mule deer hunting all the time, you know, there's always this silly little argument of is it elk or what's the, what's the best thing to hunt? And there is no answer to that, but there is just something about mule deer. And I'm with Remy on the fact that that early season, um, they're not hard-horned yet. You get to see a lot of animals. You get to see them summer range, tops of the hill generally, in some of the coolest country, alpine-type stuff something about that specific time of year chasing muley bucks is just incredible Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. yeah so let's
1: get into that a little bit you know i mean where are you finding these deer sounds like it's you know you're going you're up high like you said it's it's early in the year like how how early are we talking i mean it probably depends on the state maybe when they're going to have their archery opener but like what's kind of the the timeline there
2: you know yeah, it does. It definitely varies on the state. Um, I know we're going to be being from Nevada. You guys start yeah. really early. August. It could be August through September.
0: I mean, mostly I would say August is the beginning of it, and then I would okay. say
2: mid-September would be kind of the end of it if we're talking early season. I don't yeah. know. Yeah, and that's what I found. Um, being from Washington, it used to be September 1st, uh, so I would have to kind of like do my job pretty quickly because they go hardhorn pretty fast, generally by the end of that first week in September in Washington anyway, uh, a lot of those bucks have scraped and they're starting to drop down into that secondary living area. But uh, the beauty about states like Nevada or Utah where it's a mid-August, early August opener, mm-hmm. August 10th, August 15th, um, man, you feel like you have some time to really learn them, see them in that environment. They're not, there's not this rush to, uh, try to try to get them out in the open with your bow with a threat of them becoming hard horn and dumping down into, you know, maybe generally I've, I've found that they dump down about a thousand feet once they've scraped that velvet off. So yeah, generally I think, I think Remy's right. It's like mid August to mid September. That's kind of the time frame there. Gotcha. Gotcha. And so when you guys are talking about,
1: you know, learning these deer, right? So you're, you're getting up there, I'd assume, you know, glassing is a pretty strong component of finding the deer and then along with that, though, you're talking about learning the deer. So, so you're spending some time not just, like, finding a buck and going after it because you found it. Are you, are you kind of taking time to learn maybe a specific deer or, or just kind of a group of deer, or how's that working in general? Like, I know every situation is probably going to be a little bit different. Every deer is going to be different, you know, the way – different basin or you know contributing factors like other people but I mean how's how's that going for you?
2: Yeah I think it really varies again you know if if you're hunting your home state and you have the ability to scout those weeks leading up to the opener that changes everything maybe you have the ability to go find a specific buck and look for an age class and and pick one out or two or three and then and then really target that buck and learn his behaviors and, and figure out that whole program. I think I travel a lot now. I try to pull tags in these early states, Nevada, for example. And so I don't have the ability to go out and scout places like that. So really, you're just kind of, uh, you're breaking everything down into finding these alpine basins that, and it's not always alpine basins, high deserts, it's a ton of high desert down there. And, uh, you know, just looking for, you tend to find bachelor groups of bucks at that time of year. And, you know, if you're going for a certain age class Then yeah, you try to find that one. But yeah, I think each type of topography is a little bit different. You know, Nevada is significantly different than Washington was. Back home in Washington, it was it was smaller areas. You don't really get above timberline. You're looking for av shoots, terrain up in the tamarack type country where you're finding small openings in places and uh, a lot less dense, you know, densely populated with deer versus Nevada from what I've seen so far, you're, you've hunted a lot more than me, Remy, but it just feels like there's a lot more deer to pick and choose from and, uh, having to leave, you know, a certain group of deer because maybe there's some folks around is, is not a big worry. It's like, you can go find more. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I've, I
0: try to hunt as many places as I can and you'll see like different areas you hunt differently. So if I'm in Montana, for that early archery season, you know, they, their season sometimes starts later. It depends on the year, but maybe that's the beginning of September. And depending on when the deer shed the year before and the type of winter there was is going to depend on when they're going to shed their velvet, uh, the following year. But I'll look like you say, like higher. What I like to do is I like to find areas with low deer densities, but a higher percentage of just not going to be running into someone bumping the deer because early season deer mule deer aren't necessarily patternable but they are predictable. Does that make sense? Yeah. So like whitetail hunters, I think the thing about whitetails or whatever early season, they're super patternable. They'll move the same trails to the feed and whatever. Mule deer might be predictable. Like they're going to feed in this one area. So if I'm scouting and I find him, I know, okay, this buck lives here. Unless he's pressured, he's probably going to be there. But the way that he comes in, you might watch him two days in a row go on one trail and you think, oh, I'll go sit over there. You can sit there the rest of the season. He's not going to go that same way (laughs) or within bow range. So it's like he's predictable, but not patternable. Okay. Um, And that's one thing that I think is so challenging about early season. If I were to pick something of, if you asked me, what's the hardest animal to hunt? I would say early season, mature mule deer. Absolutely. Because it's just a mind game or even just, I would say, big mature mule deer. Once it hits the rut, it's a little bit different, Mm -hmm. but Mm -hmm. early season they're looking out for danger they're in bachelor groups often with lots of eyes and really the most predict or like the most consistent way to kill them is spot and stalk whereas everything else you they kind of have a weakness those deer they don't necessarily have a weakness and as soon as you think you figured them out you kind of tricked yourself there are times where you you notice something and you go okay they're doing this i'm going to go do that and it works out right but i'd say for the majority of the time you really have to kind of understand what they're doing and then make your plan accordingly. One thing that I've done over the years is when I first started hunting archery early, whatever, I'd go out in July. I would scout, figure out these deer, go, okay. And then I would watch the deer every day of the season. Like there was a buck that I hunted one year for over a hundred days, like just trying to figure out what are, and I learned a lot about deer then. Mm -hmm. So they are, they're predictable, but then they've got their ways that the things that they do that they mess up at. And that's like once you find what those deer are doing, where they're messing up, that's their Achilles' heel. But I feel like the best strategy for hunting early season mule deer, and uh, you maybe agree or everybody hunts stuff different. But I was like, I look for that one deer that did something stupid because you'll kill that deer. Like it's the <laughs> easiest thing when you find one that does something dumb. Yeah, that's when you. That's when you go.
1: <laughs> mm, you're you the know. guy. You're, yeah, you're because the there's guy.
0: there's those one deer that always bed. Looking over something, wind at their back, whatever. And then there's that one deer. The one day he's like, "Yeah, this shady spot behind the rock. The wind's going the other way, but I'm going to sit here for a little bit." Right. And then you go and kill that deer.
1: That's what I was going to ask. Is like, you know, when when you're talking that, like, talking about it in that way, like, is it because they're doing something that makes them vulnerable? Like it's, and then you're like, "I'm going to go exploit that." Yes. Now, is that an individual? scenario like like that deer kind of you see him do that that one time and then you make your move or is that almost even you're like no that deer like kind of has a habit of doing this one thing and i'm going to exploit that
0: i think a lot of time it's just they did it and you got to do it when they do it okay does that make sense yeah so it's like some some deer it depends on hunting pressure and where they are as well. Some deer just don't like to make mistakes, and it's those big mature mule deer that make mistakes less often. So if I'm just if I don't have a lot of time to hunt, I mostly just find dumb deer and stock it. Not but I was like I just stock deer that are making mistakes. Okay, um, right, you know because yeah, and I've hunted I've hunted a lot of different ways. That way seems to be the most consistent. Then there's the other approach where it's just like see deer stock deer, and a lot of guys do that. But I think once you start messing with a deer, especially early, like you you have the advantage because they haven't been really hunted hard yet early. So once they know that you're there, you, every time you mess up, that's just one less chance
2: you're going to get. I don't know if you feel the Absolutely, same way. Absolutely, like, yeah. Unmolested deer are the, the best deer to put yeah. stocks on, right? Yeah. 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 If, you,
0: if you've if you got a deer that like made a mistake and he hasn't been stalked yet, odds are really good that if you don't mess that up, like if you don't do something stupid yourself, you'll probably get in and get a shot. So that's, it's like, I look for what I call like high percentage stocks where the deer has, where I have a slight advantage because that's the hardest part is just finding a deer that gives you the slight advantage. Because most of the time, not that they aren't stockable, but they're just, they have the advantage. So I look for anything that tips the scale in my favor, just a a little bit. Bedding in a place where they've got an unobstructed view, putting themselves where the wind is in my favor, or maybe they're, you know, I watch it for a couple of days and like, this is what the deer are doing. They're hitting this and they've got nowhere else to bed, but that patch, okay, I'll I'll, I'll ambush there or kind of making a plan based on
1: their weakness. Gotcha, gotcha.
2: Yeah, and I, you know, I feel like the topography kind of dictates everything, right? I can remember experiences where there's places I've hunted mountains in Nevada where there are beds everywhere. And so patterning them is really difficult. You know, like Remy said, it's like they've got so many different places that they can dump into and bed, and they're not doing the same bed day in and day out. I've also hunted places where you can count that there's there's a couple spots, there's a couple shady spots when the sun hits here, where a big buck has this little pattern. It's not as common for sure, Mm -hmm. but picking the terrain that you're hunting sometimes really matters. One of the things that uh, I like to do, and the only way, the only reason I I have the ability to do this is because I have time. I try to I try to give myself ten days on a hunt. Coming wow. from out of state, I just I want to have the ability to. If I do find that one buck that's just really that excites me, you know, maybe I'll just stop right there and I'm going to wait, like Remy said, for him to make a mistake. He's okay. put himself in a spot. Maybe the first day I show up, it's like, wow, that's the dumb one. He put himself right behind that rock and and that's a really stockable spot. But I'm really careful uh, when it comes to not pushing him not being reckless in an area that's doesn't have any folks I feel like I'm I've always set myself up with time so I can sit back and watch and and I can remember an experience uh, a couple years ago on a Colorado early season hunt where uh, I found a a, you know a handful of bucks one of them was super sexy I mean this was like a dream buck of mine right just long tines and just a really cool looking buck and had the age and sway back and all that and uh but he was in a spot where there was no way I was going to get this buck. I mean, I would have needed ropes and climbing gear to just come down this big shoot and there was just it w- wasn't going to happen. But there were areas on that in that basin where if he moved over and he fed over in this little shoot one day and he bedded over here, I could have made a play on him. So I ended up just kind of uh you know, I, I still hunted around and looked at other bucks. But I kept coming back to that one, just waiting for him to make a mistake, put himself in a vulnerable spot. It, it took a long time. It was day eight when he finally moved away from this ledge where he'd been bedding with the other bucks, and he put himself in just a almost a gimme of a spot. And I got in on that buck, and, and I ended up taking that buck. But if I wouldn't have had the days to do it, it would have never happened. And it was like the eighth day before he made a mistake. Wow. So...
1: Yeah, that's interesting. I mean, it sounds like there's, you know, the bucks are highly visible, right? You know, you're talking about essentially relocating a deer multiple times. And I know that's one thing that I struggle with personally. And and part of that comes down to time, right? You know, and I guess I'm not talking necessarily high country mule deer, but general, you know, maybe hunting in general. But like, I'm always like, I don't know if I'm going to find that deer again. And maybe that's like a confidence thing or a time thing. But I'm always like, man, I think I predominantly have like this make hay while the sun is shining, even though maybe the sun might not be shining as brightly as it could be tomorrow, you you end up blowing the deer out versus, you know, killing them the next day or something like that. But it sounds like, you know, you're talking about being patient and just waiting for the time is right to have that, that high percentage scenario where you have, you know, a, a much higher likelihood of success.
2: Yeah. You know, I could definitely go both ways. I think if you're in a highly pressured area, where you pretty much count on other people to be coming in and possibly picking up that same deer, I'd definitely get a little more reckless um, and impatient and try to push the envelope a little bit more. But, boy, if you get that feeling like I'm the only guy and I've got days to do this, there's nobody else up here. I haven't seen a boot track. I, there was nobody in the parking lot. Or you're just so far back that there's just not going to be some folks. I'm going to be the most cautious person on the planet and make sure that I don't mess it up. But I think, uh, you know, just knowing the country, knowing how many guys are around that, that kind of dictates a lot of that. Yeah. Knowing how much time you
0: have. I mean, there's so many, you know, that's, that's one way of hunting them. And then like you say, there's, there's the other way of, that's the way that I would hunt one particular deer. You know, you're kind of talking about uh, if you're, if you're hunting one particular deer and there's no one around, whatever, I'm, that's how I'm going to hunt it. But if I, if you're just like, Hey, you got three days to hunt and you want to kill a nice buck, then it's. You just, what I do is I hunt places where deer are going to put themselves in more likely opportunities for me to stock. Like I'm going to areas where there's not as many trees and I've got a nice south facing slope with some rim rocks. Like that's, that's awesome. Cause even if the wind's bad, sometimes it'll blow right over the top of them. You sneak down from the top, they're right below you. It's a, it's a done deal. Or you say, you know, you find kind of figure them out for a day, do a lot of glass and see what they like to do. And then you spend the rest of your time kind of running and gunning between spots where deer are going to do something that you're, you're going to give you an advantage. And every time, as soon as you see that advantage, it's like, you need to be there now. Go make it happen. There's been deer hunts where I'm literally from sunup to sundown running from spots. Spot. <laughs> like You're like, deer there, run, yeah. get there. Okay, he, now he's no longer behind the rim rock, but now they're <laughs> going to the trees. Run to the trees, crawl through the tre- and then like get there, slow down, crawl in, that kind of thing.
2: Absolutely. So it just, yeah.
0: it really depends on the hunt. Yeah. You know, if you're targeting one deer and there's nobody around and you've got the time, then you wait for the deer to make a mistake. But there's the other times where you're just, you're really just going, the more times I have an opportunity at something, the more likely I
2: am to succeed or learn something and do it different next time. Yeah. You, it, like certain hunts are definitely opportunity hunts. Like you, you, like you say, if you have three days and- And uh, it's just like, you want to fill that deer tag, oh man, running and gunning and taking every opportunity, even if it's a 50% chance of you'll get in there tight, take it for sure. Yeah. I think every, every spot is definitely different and it's really hard to just like pin it down to one thing, one strategy.
1: Yeah. And I could see, you know, even just, you know, thinking it through as, as we talk about it, number one, I'm not super picky when it comes to deer. In fact, I was watching... I think one of your uh, videos, uh, for, or I think it was an Instagram story, actually, Ryan, and you're like, ah, oh, you know, you know, here's some bucks, you know, and and they're they're little guys. And in my head, I was actually kind of scratching my head, cause I'm like, oh, little guys, man, like I'd be putting a move on those things right now. But yeah. <laughs> but uh, but also, I guess with that, right, like like I said, I haven't personally hunted high country mule deer. Probably the thing that I've done closest to that would be like alpine blacktails on Prince of Wales. Like mm. it was very alpiney, you know, like rocky rim rock and and things like that and so i'm you know drawing i guess some mental parallels to like what you guys are describing what i've seen and read about but also you know i suppose if i was like waiting all week if i hadn't done it a ton right if i was waiting all week to like make the perfect stock like imagine if you're going to make multiple stocks like obviously you're going to do it more you're going to lose you know you're going to have more opportunities to be successful but i bet you're going to learn a heck of a lot along the way with each
2: one of those stocks at least that'd be my speculation oh yeah absolutely no i i haven't done the um the blacktail thing but it does sound very very similar because they're kind of above all the scrub you know it feels like tree line right Mm -hmm. up in the open alpine and all that and i haven't done it i'm sure remy's probably yeah it's very similar
0: i mean the the tactics are the same just above timberline the deer visible they're easy to spot and then you just kind of you know and on the blacktail see sometimes you get a lot of opportunities right you aren't picky yeah there's you can have a day where you're like well i should kill a deer today (laughs) and some of that too you just kind of mob around up at the top because it's a little thicker and you just start seeing deer as you're going on some of those little benches and that's a great way to hunt mule deer as well like getting into their zone and, and getting the wind right and still hunting too i've i've taken a lot of mule deer still hunting but if i was to choose one tactic for early season mule deer it's it's the spot and stalk game and a combination of spot and stalk. And I, I don't know how much you do this, Ryan, but uh, spot and stalk and ambush. It's, it's more of like you're stalking, but the deer are moving. They're moving from their, their beds to their feeding areas, and you kind of have a general idea. This is where they're going to feed, maybe a big sage flat or something like that or a, a avalanche shoot, but they're bedding at this area. There's no good way to get them when they're bedding. That's ideal if you can get them when they're bedded, but sometimes there's too many deer, too bad it wins winds. So it's like this combination of moving and setting yourself up where I'm going to cut them off. Okay. A lot, I do a lot of that. And I think that people don't maybe even talk about that as much with music because they say about well, spot and stock, but it's spotting stocking to a spot where you can ambush. Like you're you're going they're going 25%, you're going 75, or they're going 50, you're going 50 somewhere
2: You know, and you do a few of those that I've had a lot of success on some bucks with that. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I feel like you're right. I don't think it gets talked about a lot. I feel like a lot of people think of spot stock and they think of the classic situation. You got a nice boulder or rim rock. You got a buck bedded underneath it in a shady spot. You got this nice area above it to come down. The wind's coming up and and you come down, you shoot that thing in this bed. Yeah. I don't know. It happens. And sometimes you find, you know, it happens, you know, in, in quite a few hunts, but I feel like lately, a lot of the times it is, like you say, you go 75% and then you let them do the rest. Because a lot of times you don't have an opportunity to get within 25, 35, 40 yards, but you can get within 75 yards or a hundred yards. And, um, taking a gamble and guesstimating which way, or maybe you've seen which way they tend to feed out of this bed. Man, I've had a lot of opportunities where it is about just getting tight and then it's just being completely patient Mm -hmm. and having the confidence that when he gets up, yeah, he may feed the other way, but there's a real good chance he's going to feed either right or left where you're going to have a shot. Mm -hmm. And, uh, man, I can think of so many times where that's the case. It's just putting yourself in a place and then having the the mental fortitude to just stay there, and that may be for three, four, five hours until he makes a move, and then you're able to get him when when uh, his guard is down and he's just up and feeding. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I think you know. I see. I I always joke with
0: my friends, or even when I'm out there, I'm like, okay on tv when i watch people kill early season mule deer it's always like that bedded in behind the rock with the wind right and i was like i I rarely ever see that scenario (laughs) (laughs) like it just doesn't happen i was like man it's magical when it does i was (laughs) like because that's just a deer doing something stupid of course you're going to kill that deer did something stupid but i always find deer that hardly do something stupid so what I have to do is adjust my tactics and the way that I stalk them. If I, if I can stalk a deer when it's bedded, that's great. But the the downside to that is that's when the deer, for the most part, is the most alert, and there's also deer that you don't see that they're, they're just as alert, always on guard. They only bed in places that they feel safe, in, and that means that they're right. going to be a disadvantage to you. I think that if I think back of most of the deer that I've killed – early season with a bow like especially like the bigger bucks it's like ryan said it's like i will get into an area and wait like they're bedded then i wait for them to move feeding and i would say probably 70 percent of the early season mule deer i kill are feeding there's a sweet magical moment when they're feeding and it's like at first they're super on it they're looking around right when they then, stand up yeah and then you let them like I, I do a lot of stalks when they're feeding because that's when there's there's this one point where you can kind of get in there within that 100-yard range and you almost just acclimatize yourself to that group of mule deer. And it's like at, at that point, it's like they're no longer looking your direction. Their heads are down. They just don't really care. And it's normally that last hour of there's like this you just know it when it happens like you're there long enough where you're like you could almost get up do the polka get back down (laughs) and you're like because they just they're there and you didn't rush it you just waited for that opportune time when their heads are down mostly they're feeding and they're distracted as opposed to a bedded deer that's ears are out every other deer's looking he might nod off unless he's but he's probably got four other buddies that are on alert. Right. And when those deer kind of all get together, there there's movement going on, there's other things going on. You just kind of make your way in that. Right. And there's there's a lot of you know, if you've got a little like crawling and whatever, you can do pretty well when they're they're just distracted and they've they've looked out for danger long enough. And, you know, a lot of time you can kind of predict where they're going and get into that position where they're like, all right, they've been there long enough, and then they get into this weird distraction mode of now they're feeding. Gotcha. And that's the best time. I think I mean, that's a great time to sneak up on them as well. So it's like yeah. either when they're
2: bedded solid, doing something stupid or distracted. Yeah, I can think back when, I don't know, I guess I was a rookie back in the early days. I made so many mistakes where uh, you kind of wait for a buck to get up, and then the second he gets up, you're like, i got to draw my bow and try to get the shot. But you're right. Like you said, that's, that's when they aren't. They, they stand up, and if you observe them and have spent some time with them, they tend to stand up, and they're high alert, and they're looking around for danger. But then there's this point, and it usually doesn't take very long, where they just completely relax. And then, yeah, do the poke or whatever, get your bow drawn back. Yeah. And, uh, and generally that just gives you so much of a better chance of, of them not detecting movement but letting their head get down and start feeding again. So for sure, no, I, I screwed up on that a lot. And I, I'm assuming, you know, new bow hunters probably make that same mistake and they don't allow that deer to just get completely relaxed.
1: Because mm-hmm.
2: generally they're high alert when they're bedded. They're very high alert when they first
1: stand up. Okay, gotcha. Well, and I, and I could see like a lot of advantage, you know, at least in my bow hunting experience, like closing that last, those last critical yards, you know particularly in in country that's you know noisy or there's there's rocks you might roll like I did in Arizona uh, and blew out a really nice coos deer buck but it, it just it makes a lot of sense like being able to watch that deer, let them stand up, let them relax, you know particularly if they're not in a really good stockable spot to begin with, and let them potentially i guess kind of pick a vector or that direction and let them close the distance now, like you said, they're moving they're distracted a little bit, they're relaxed, they're making some noise, right, you know, so they're not, I mean, they're quiet, but they're not completely quiet, you know, and if they can close those last critical few yards for you, you know, hopefully all you have to do is draw your bow and,
2: and make a good shot, which is easier said than done too, but. Yeah, no, there's just a lot of, a lot of opportunities where you're going to screw up that last 50 yards if you try to push it, and, um, you know, it just makes more sense, and your odds are going to get, go way up to not blow that deer out if you just sit back and wait and let them make the move. Mm-hmm. Um, I've gotten way better at that over the years of just not going all the way, going so far, realizing this is as close as I can get. And, uh, you know, knowing you, basically knowing what you can get away with is something that just comes over time, I feel yeah. like. Another thing that I think a lot of people don't think about is
0: the biggest enemy for early season mule deer for the hunter is the wind right and so what i do is there's times where you're like all right you know you, you have to pay attention to thermals your wind because the winds are so swirly in these mountains a lot of there's so many times you, you sneak into a buck and you go like all right you're sitting on him waiting for him to get up and you know like all right in 20 minutes the wind's going to swirl yeah. like and yeah, that's yeah. and you you might have been there for 5 hours and that deer didn't get up and you're like okay well now we're, we're going to get in trouble and you sat there all day and then he, you're like dang it I should have gone done something different <laughs> you know you don't know but one thing that I try to pay attention to is I'll see a deer bed and I think a lot of people right when they bed in the morning you see a bed and they're like oh go get after it but the winds are not stable. I like to wait until they bed later on in the day and get those like th- like hot day, get those thermals going and know that, okay, I've got a four hour window before anything's going to change or okay. I'll go in the, e- you know, you kind of plan based on what the thermals are going to do, what the winds have been doing and then where that deer is on the mountain and how the winds are affected by the contours of the mountain. And that factors in a lot to when I decide to stalk what I decide to stalk and whether I'm going to do an ambush setup or something else because you'll notice, oh, every day they've been hitting the sage flat. They're bedding up in those trees. The wind's always going up to them, but in the evening, then it starts to drop. So you'll do your stalk, you'll get in there, and then that sun, that shade hits, they stand up, and the wind's right to them, and you just just blew it or you should have been below them most of the day.
1: Which is probably the exact reason why they stay bedded that long and are comfortable standing Correct. up. Because they know that the wind is going to push any threat from above down, and they're probably looking downhill. And Yeah. Just, you know what? It's really unfair. They're always using their senses to their advantage. They are. <laughs> How dare they? <laughs>
2: I, don't, I don't get it. Yeah, it, it is It's like they're trying to survive or something. Yeah. <laughs> the first bed um that they take, now I've seen deer, like, first bed is their all-day bed you know yeah. it's rare generally they bed in a spot and you know within an hour the sun's kind of tipped over and you know put a little light on them and they get up and move um, sometimes longer than that and they'll go to a second or sometimes a third bed and Remy's totally right that's that's probably going to be the all-day bed that bed where they that sun isn't going to move to the point where it's going to get on them it's going to heat them up full shade that's the spot that's the time when you want to think about making that that play for sure when I'm stalking in, like if I if I'm
0: stalking a deer in an all day bed, what I do is I anticipate where the sun's gonna move and then I get in there while it's bedded, but I don't get in to where I can get a shot most of the time. I go and anticipate because they are gonna like that's they're gonna get hot and most of the time they'll get up and then they'll walk back into the shade of that same area so i anticipate that because there's so many times that when i started out i'd stalk into that bedded deer have no shot because he's, he's laying down there's a juniper behind him whatever and then he gets up and he walks the wrong direction and then something gets messed up you know you move whatever so i try to anticipate okay when that deer gets up how am i going to get a shot okay so i get into where i'm going to get a shot when he gets up the next time gotcha it's a lot of like you wanna be two steps ahead, not one step behind.
1: Right, right. So I'm trying to picture that. So like you're saying like let's say he's bedded like I guess like probably in the shade to some degree, and he's gonna kinda follow that shade a little bit. Is that what you're describing? Yeah, they, or am I missing Yeah, so a
0: lot of what they'll do is as the sun moves, the shadow's gonna get off that deer and he's gonna be baking in the sun. And he'll right. sit there for I don't know, ten minutes or whatever, and then he'll get up, he'll like stretch out a little bit, he'll probably do like a little three sixty, he'll look around and then he'll just move whatever, and sit back down facing the other direction. Okay. Gotcha. So it's just anticipating where that shade's going to move. If you know, I think it's going to take me an hour to get over there, and you're stalking in from this way because he's bedded right here. Mm -hmm. You're better off stalking around the other side where you're going to anticipate him getting into if you know it's going to take some time, and you're like, how deep shaded is he? What's his whole scenario look like? You know, what are some factors that are going to come up on the time it takes me to get into position? Gotcha. Like, I like to try to think of all that stuff. And sometimes you think of it, when you do it enough, you just think of it simultaneously and you just go do it. Right, They're like, yeah, you just run over there and shot a deer. And I'm like, yeah, but all this other knowledge <laughs> was just like running through my head at the same time. And I think it pisses people off that hunt with me. They're like, this isn't right. Like I've been out here all week and like you just come up here and go kill a deer. And I'm like, yeah, but I've put in thousands of days doing this. Like I see a deer and I know what to do. Yeah, But the, these are just some of the things that I think I almost do subconsciously right. at this point where I used to really analyze it. Now
1: it's just like I see it, I analyze it, I go. You know, you've done it enough. No, I can see that, you know, because, like, you know, from the outside, right, like, if I was watching, I'd be like, how did Remy know that when he got up, he was going to walk that way? Like, he could have gone anywhere, right? But right. in reality, like, no, he was going to do that because he still wants to be in the shade. And if you think about the way the sun's going, how those shadows are going to lay, or maybe, you know, how maybe that, even how maybe that terrain feature or how tall it is, you know, how, what the shadow, it's going to continue to cast as the day moves on. That's Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah. Like you said, I, he, I've
0: he, even got on bucks where you see, you're like, all right, he bedded at the one tree out by itself. And you look at it and go, nah, he's going to get there. That's not going to provide enough shade. And you just go and sit in the largest clump of trees next to that. And he'll get up in two hours and he'll walk
2: straight to you. I've played that game too in Nevada. But, you know, um, I've seen that where there's places down there where the mountains are just complete it's sagebrush, it's high desert. Very very few trees, and there's so few areas where they're going to find any shade in that heat that it's almost super predictable. There's yeah. like a couple spots, and you're totally right. Yeah, it's like, well, if they're here, they're not going to stay there all day. They're going to get smoked out here pretty quick. They're definitely going to go to here. Yeah, and uh, yeah, that's that's a lot of fun. One of the one of the um, things that I always try to take advantage of is a good directional wind. You know, typically. If you're blessed with a day or two, whatever, throughout that hunt, um, man, you can get not reckless, but you can just take so many more chances with that wind. And, you know, like I said, and that's worked on coos days. I feel like coos is, we're not talking about coos, but coos is one of those deer where if I get a day where there's like a real good directional, man, that allows you to get so much tighter on an animal that's just super jumpy. I mean, you got to remember on these mule deer, they're getting hunted 365, any little noise, you know, they're used to trying to get away and, and living their life around cougars and cats and anything else that's trying to grab them. So any little noise whatsoever usually just either ends it, puts them on super high alert, and you're hosed. But, uh, man, a good directional, anything like that is, is always super helpful. And you can get, like I say, not reckless, but definitely take a lot more chances. Yeah, it seems like, you know, that would definitely take your, you to know, you think like,
1: oh, wind, you know, their nose. But that's also going to give you some noise cover as well.
2: For sure. Interesting.
1: Yeah. Interesting. So what types of, you know, when you're looking at, you know, maybe a unit or maybe an area that you, that you that you maybe haven't been to before, like what are you trying to identify that says like, oh, when I get here, I'm going to hike from point A, but, you know, points – a, B, and C, like those are my top three places I want to check out. Like, what what types of things are you looking for? And maybe that could be like even when you get there too, and you see, you know, what's around. But
2: yeah, I think new country, you know, picking picking apart areas where you have a good vantage where you can see a lot of country. Uh, hopefully, you know, I like to spend some time on with my mapping ahead of time looking there's so many options now with with google earth and all those different things where you can get a good feel for where you get a good glassing vantage and uh you can just see a lot without having to go in there and kind of interrupt everything always finding that perfect vantage where you can see a lot i mean that's kind of number one when i go to a new new area i just don't want to get in there very much i want to keep it unmolested i don't know and one of the things like if the this is easy and this is something I'm sure everybody thinks about, but looking into areas where deer are bedded throughout the day, obviously they're going to be bedded in the shade, getting that vantage where you have the ability to look into the shade. If you're looking at the wrong, in the wrong direction, man, there's you're probably going to miss some stuff. If you're looking where, you know, the sun is up and you're looking and you can't quite see the backside of the rocks or the backside of the trees, you're not going to see a whole lot that day. If you weren't there in the morning to see them get there.
0: Yeah. I mean, what I I find a lot of deer midday, like what I do is I look for where the wind's blowing downhill and the shades below, like you're looking into the, you almost like look into the sun with the wind, look into the sun and wind simultaneously. And you'll always find deer. And that's how you find the biggest bucks in the middle of the day. Because what happens is the smart bucks, the mature deer, the small deer kind of do dumb stuff. Like that's just how it is. But mature deer, they always bed with the wind at their back, looking downhill and not have to move very much during the day. And they're secure there and they're safe there. But once you know where they live, then you like work backwards from there. Where are they feeding? Where are they watering? What's like, you know why they're there. That's not the hard part. Now the hard part is figuring out where are they going to make a mistake. And sometimes when they do that, you know, sneaking up from below a deer is very, very difficult. But it's not impossible, especially if you do something where you can sneak in and then get into a position where you might be between them and something else. But thing I do is the first place I look is where the wind's coming downhill and I'm looking toward the sun because then I can look into the shadows. Gotcha. And that's generally like anywhere I go, I look for those kind of orientations based mm-hmm. on prevailing winds and whatever. But I also look for like head basins a lot of times early season. Like what it is, you know, it's kind of like, looks like an alien head on the map because what happens is they have multiple options to bed depending on the wind. And that's why those areas are good because you can, they can have everything in one basin, but they're going to also find security no matter what the wind's doing that day. Okay. And then you get the deer that are in those basins and then it goes the exact opposite direction, but they can pop over onto the other side. So I, I look for areas where it's like, they've got everything they need and they've got that place where they can bed and not be killed. Gotcha.
1: I mean, it makes, I mean, just, I mean, it's such a, like, it sounds simple, but it makes so much sense. Like, you know, you're looking to where you're going to be able to see the deer because that's where the deer wants to be because they've got everything to their advantage, but you can also see them.
0: Well, like I create like a checklist almost, I mean, now it's just in your head, but create a checklist of things you're looking at in the map and you're looking for that vantage point, like where you can see all this, where you can see multiple different options and from one place. And depending on the time of day, you can look 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 different places and most of the time i can just pick up like new areas i rarely go to a spot that i haven't identified on map and find deer and there's places there's a lot of places that don't have deer but you just know you start to know what to look for and then when i find deer in an area i really like if i just am out scouting and like deer here man i look at it on the map under just topo lines and say what does this area have and then i find other places that look just like that And you just start finding deer. It's like those deer in that area like that. And it has a lot to do with the wind, where the sun's at, where the food and water sources, and how they're going to stay safe.
1: Yeah, I like that. I mean, it's like reverse map scouting in a way.
0: Yeah, find the deer and then figure out, like, what do they
2: like about this? And then go find other places like that. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and that works with so many types of hunts. Like elk is the same way, bears the same way. Try to replicate what you saw. No,
1: that's definitely cool. Yeah. I mean, I, you know, I think the challenge lies there. It's like, okay, so what next? You know, like I even experienced some of that. I mean, I know we're talking mule deer, but like even like seeing deer bedded in shadows, you know, um, and I guess I'm relating to this like most recent coos deer hunt that I was on. But, you know, then then the challenge is like, sweet, we found one, you know, and then now what? You know, so what types of things are you guys doing to get, are you doing anything special to get close or just kind of the usual suspects, keep the one in, in your favor, keep objects between you and the deer. We talked about that previously, yeah. Remy, um, things like that. or Being quiet. I, if it's, I,
0: I take my shoes off a lot. Some people don't. I do. I'd rather just be silent <laughs> and really pay attention to all the little stuff. That's the stuff that gets you, the stupid stuff of you're in range and then you're release hits your bow riser and they're gone or just like I just or like you say you're you're there and you misplace a foot and you roll a rock I had a buddy that was on a giant buck this year like world-class buck and he's sitting there for hours and he just kind of tinkers around rolls a rock right to him and that's it that (laughs) was it you know and he's just waiting for him to stand so that's it just like Paying attention and realizing mule deer, their ears are big. Their number one defense is their, unlike a lot of other deer, they use their ears. Like elk, doesn't matter. You can just crunch, crash, whatever. It's probably better to be noisy, right? Yeah. (laughs) And then, but on a mule deer, you don't get that option. And even just paying attention to like, they bed in places where they know they can hear what's coming up behind them. Balsam root, like that, dries out. Like looks like mule's ear, whatever. Okay, yeah. I mean, in if the alpine, dry, dude, they, <laughs> yeah, just like you got to pay attention to that kind of stuff because they're going to use their ears as much as their nose in a lot of ways. Gotcha,
1: and the, and that's a good thing to identify, right? You know, that's a si- situation where you get close to that stuff and you go, "Yeah, this is as close as I'm going to get." Like yeah. maybe maybe you got to either move, I guess, or or get in that spot where you think they're going to likely move that
2: direction and you can ambush them. Yeah, I think Remy's right. I think uh, paying attention to, like I'm super anal about every single thing uh, on that final approach. I do the same thing, take off my shoes. I wear kind of like a moccasin style. Sometimes I'll put those on. Sometimes that's not quite quiet enough. If it's rocky, I'll put a a sock on over the thin leather mock and uh, and that helps. Uh, Tucking the pant legs in, hopefully you've got pants that aren't swishy, you know, everything down to the bino harness that you're using. You know, I'm surprised at a lot of, a lot of folks come out and, um, some of the gear they have is just, you're never going to pull that bino harness out of there without making a noise where he's not going to hear it. Yeah, And then also, like you say, on the release, you know, I shoot a thumb release and, uh, you know, you practice with it, try to be as quiet as possible down to finding one that doesn't have a, um, a loud click to it. Uh, I wrap my, um, my quiver with bunny fur because you know I know sometimes when you're getting in tight, you want your release, I mean, you just wanna be ready, like perfectly ready. And just one little tick of that release hitting your, your quiver and it, the jig is up at that point, right? So I wrap everything, try to make sure everything is just completely quiet and, and silent. And a lot of times now, I don't even have a bino harness on at all. I just go with the straps because if I wanna use it, just that cordura a lot of harnesses are made of a cordura sure just pulling your binos out or slipping them back in is just too loud when it's dead quiet yeah and you're inside of 50 or whatever or 100 even just just really paying attention to the gear and every single footstep matters uh, i think it's it's easy also the fitness aspect of it it's e- real easy to if you're not in shape or you haven't ever had to do a really really slow stock on an animal It wipes you out, right, Remy? I mean, it just completely drains you when you're moving at a snail's pace. Um, So, being fit and maybe practicing that, uh, I'm not going to the level of taking yoga or anything like that yet. I probably should, it'd probably help out. But, uh, you know, just practicing being able to move extremely slow and paying attention to every single footfall, every single move. Super important on mule deer especially. They got those big old ears, and let's, I mean, they're, they're getting chased by cats, and cats can be pretty quiet. Yeah.
1: Yeah. I mean, describe, because describe, I think, you know, I'm hunting with a lot of people, and I, th- I feel like everybody has their own speed, you know? So, like, describe extremely slow if you can. Oh, man. Uh, it's just, like, it's slow enough to be
0: below. I always just, I have, like, a thing that I think it's like, below perception so it's it's slow enough to where it depends on the scenario like every every situation's different because there's certain times where you need to be there while they're there and that's running
1: okay and right. then
0: there's the scenario where it's like okay you go from running to is it dry like how uh, i mean sometimes you'll go a hundred yards in an hour mm-hmm. it just it honestly depends on wow. okay on how you are like i if it's loud and I've got my bow and I'm like, okay, they can, they could see me. I have to stay low, no wind. You're going to just, it's going to be every movement is so slow that you don't make hardly any noise or the
2: noise that you do make doesn't sound like anything. Right, Yeah. right. Yeah, I mean, it, it really does depend on the cover you're in or the ground you're on. I mean, if it's rocky and it's that dry dirt, which uh, a lot of the Nevada type hunts have, you can't quite go slow enough, but you also have to be aware of your time restraints, right? Mm-hmm. Um, When's the wind going to switch, all those type things. But yeah, it's sloth-like, I mean, for the most part, but getting in and just... So you're physically
1: you know, growing moss. Then, yeah, as much. Much. Okay, <laughs> But
2: I
0: mean, that that could be when you get to 100 yards. It could be when you get to 80. Or, like you just, it just depends on the scenario. And then there's times where you're like, I'll just stalk the entire way in my boots and backpack because the, the scenario it's like, if they're bedded below a ledge, yeah, dude, I'm running to that point and I'm breathing heavy and I slow down 10 yards from the ledge and just creep up. And it's like, yeah, because you you know that deer made a mistake and you got to get there in that amount of time. There's other times where it's bedded and you're like, yeah, I'm going to crawl all day and you're crawling all day and you don't even get to a hundred yards and that deer gets up and starts feeding. And you're like, whoop, that didn't work. You know, so it just depends. It's so situational.
1: Yeah, yeah. Well, you talk about being in shape. Like, obviously, those mountains are steep. They're big. You know, you're covering a lot of ground just to get in. And then couple that with, you know, running
2: somewhere with your backpack, you know. Yeah. That's a lot. Yeah, and being tensed up is just, uh, man, it drains you. Physically drains you. I'm usually the most tired after a stock that didn't work out. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah, the whole, like...
0: You're using muscles you didn't know. You're you're getting beat by the sun. You're just like by the end. You just feel oh the dust and the whatever. And you're just and then you go sleep on the rocks somewhere. You're, it's physically and mentally draining, right? And it's just sometimes the guys that do are the most successful in that. It's not the guys that are the best at mule deer hunting, the best shots. It's just the dudes that are like a nail that can keep getting hit with a hammer and not give up, you know, (laughs) (laughs) just like, just like, yep, those are the dudes. They just, they go out, they just keep grinding and they're going to be the ones that are successful because they're just out there long enough that, yeah, I don't know, persistence and like the deer doing something stupid intersect. Right. And that's, I'm mostly, most of my success is just attributed to the fact that like I can be out there and other people go and, take a nap in the middle of the day. And I'm like, yeah, full sun, lips bleeding. I don't give a shit. I'm just a mule deer robot, <laughs> like mule deer hunting uh, robot. I just hunt. That's all I do. <laughs> think of nothing else. Like, uh, I don't want to sleep. I just go, 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 go. And then you're like, yeah, I got one. <laughs>
2: <laughs> it's true. Every opportunity matters and you got to take advantage. Once, I, I, once I feel you're like elk hunting, You sometimes you take naps, but never... Never for mule deer. You're always able to pick them up, and generally in the, they're in the open. So there's always opportunity to glass up a big buck, and it can just, similar to elk, it can just happen, you know, when you least expect it. Yeah. I mean, I,
0: there's I like my eyes just get fried. And I think one of the best pieces of gear you can take on an early season mule deer hunt is uh, eye drops because it's dusty. Yeah. You're in the sun all day. You're looking into the sun. You're getting fried, and just like eye drops. That's, that's – because that, that, you're – yeah, you're just – glass like, you're doing a lot of glassing. And you might not – you might see one deer in a good spot in the middle of the day every four days, but it's worth it because yeah. it's in a spot that you're probably going to make a good
1: stock too. How long are you guys spending in, like, a spot? Like, I mean, you know, we're talking a little bit earlier. Like, the deer are pretty visible, right? But, like, are you – like, if you get into a basin and you don't see anything with, like – within like an hour or a basin or a spot or whatever, like, are you like, nope, I know there's deer here because like, you know, maybe a variety of, of terrain and habitat features are coming together and you're like, nope, I just know deer want to be here. It's just a matter of time until I find one. Or is the terrain generally such that you're like, man, I didn't see anything. I need to go to that next spot and
2: find out where these deer are. And maybe that just depends, too. It really does, yeah. You know, a lot of it is instinct. A lot of it is do you feel like you saw everything? Uh, If you don't, maybe you want to spend another glassing session that evening or the next morning. Uh, If you truly feel like you've covered everything, you've seen every square inch you put in your time, probably time to move on. But it, it really is dependent on the terrain, if it's got pockets of aspens, if it's got, you know, others where you're just not quite seeing Maybe, maybe you do want to add another morning or evening glass and session to it. There's definitely places where they're going to be above the timber and there's definitely going to be places where it's going to take them coming out of the timber to see them, even in that early season.
0: Like I, yeah, where I hunted this last year, it was just more, you're looking at it and you go, well, there's a lot of country and I see about 4% of it. So when I sit there in glass, I know I'm not seeing the deer. Okay. So it's like, I will sit there because I know, okay, they have everything they need. It's just, I don't have enough terrain to see them. Now, if I'm in somewhere open, I'm like, okay, I should be able to pick up the deer up and I don't see deer. I'm moving. Gotcha. It just, it really, and it depends on densities of the area. Like all that plays into it. And a lot of times I try to find areas that don't have a lot of deer density, but it's like, okay, I know that now there's not that many deer in this particular area, but I'm not seeing any other hunters. This is good habitat Sooner
2: or later, I'll find a deer here. Yeah, especially if you've seen like a couple tracks or something. Yeah, Yeah. sure, sure. Yeah, I'm sure you're putting. And I look for that as too as well. That's like one of my favorite places to kind of seek out is lower density because lower density all tends to mean less hunters. Period.
0: But it's also it's like I'm the type of hunter that I can go days without seeing something and know that I'm not doing something wrong. Right. Whereas if you're If you're new into it or whatever, go to the places with the most deer, find a nursery of deer and get into deer (laughs) and understand, like get those encounters because I can go to a place and not see deer for four days. And they're like, well, why are you? And I was like, I know deer well enough to know where they're going to be and where they're not. And so I know when I'm in those areas, it might not necessarily mean that there's no deer, but I like hunting those areas because when the deer that I do see aren't pressured and whatever and they're more Mm -hmm. age class and that's just like the deer that i like to hunt but until you get to that point you might just want to
1: get some get some action yep yep no i mean that makes a lot of sense for sure i mean it makes a ton of sense so you know and you know you're talking about eye drops and like like it's something that i've never carried but like now that i look back i'm like man i probably wish i would have had some eye drops, like you said, it's hot, it's dry, it's dusty, you know, you're, you're, you're glassing in, intently for extended periods of time. And, uh, you know, that's, that's definitely a good tip. Are there, are there other things like, what are, what are some other kind of like, you know, maybe out of the box or overlooked things, you know, Ryan, you're talking about 10 days. I mean, 10 days in the backcountry that's a long time. I mean, that's a, what other things are you doing other than just being tough as nails and persistent and being mule deer robots, which I think you know both you guys are, and I think that's a really strong, strong necessary attribute to, or attributes to be able to do that. But what what are some other kind of tricks that you have learned along the way that you know people would benefit from?
2: I don't I don't want I don't know if it's overlooked, but I think one of the things that's helped me and that I really put a big emphasis on uh, is is food, I guess. 10 days, 12 days, if you're kind of uh, shirking yourself on food and eating something that's really not giving you the energy, or you're just calorie deficient over 10 days, two weeks, uh, you're probably going to start bonking. You're going to lose a little bit mentally. You're probably not going to have your head in the game by whatever day, eight, nine, 10, whatever. So I really put a strong emphasis on the food that I carry in, uh, making sure I have obviously enough of it, but also the nutrition is there uh really kind of tailored my my food that I take to things that I can make at home things that I typically eat at home I know you know they they sit well with me I make a lot of like uh, high fat type cookies a lot of coconut type concoctions and then the meals like the morning meal mm mm-hmm. Nutrient-rich, a little more carbs. I, I definitely add a little more carbs to the mountain uh, food. But my meals, like the the end-of-the-day type things, I look forward to those. So uh, making your own, um, you know, very calorie-dense, something that you've really enjoyed, like stuff that you eat back home, uh, whether that's like uh, pasta meals or rice curry dishes. I love gardening, so I like to add a lot of the gardens-type type stuff and the meat from prior hunts. these dishes and then dehydrating them down
1: okay, and having
2: that at the end of the day. So, uh, yeah, I think looking forward to that night's meal and then making sure you're having food that's, uh, that's actually doing you right and getting you to the end of the days and still feeling good. (laughs) You just kind of have to, it, it really is like, a um, if you're calorie deficient for so long, you just lose it like mentally you just kind of want to get you get pulled off the mountain okay uh so um yeah that's that's one of my biggest focuses that i talk about it a lot and that's dialing in your food uh, and the nutrition i think the second thing would be sleep sleep system that works for you if you're a guy that uh, has trouble sleeping on the mountain i'm not that guy i tend to sleep really good on the mountain but uh maybe finding something that's going to help you sleep whether that's a melatonin or whatever if i take melatonin i'm out in 10 minutes and I sleep all night long. Some people it doesn't work that well but I know there's I've talked to so many people that have a hard time sleeping in the mountains Hmm. I'm not that guy I don't know Remy if you are but uh, finding something that's going to help you get that sleep so you're not so mentally fatigued Mm -hmm. so you know I've got my sleep system very well dialed with my bag and the pad that works well for me whether it's hot or cold and again I think if you're a guy that just doesn't get the sleep maybe try melatonin or something that, that really knocks you out. Gotcha. Gotcha.
1: Yeah. I mean, that makes
2: perfect sense. I mean, like, you know, you got to
1: sleep and you got to eat or else you're just going to be, you know, like you said, it's going to mentally like pull you off the mountain. You're going to have to have mm-hmm. to go home probably maybe even physically, right? Just, you're just not going to be able to, to operate out there when you're, to dive into the food a little bit, when you're dehydrating, you know, these meals, yourself, how are you like I guess how are you storing them and then how are you cooking them on the mountain? Like you know, when I generally make like a like an off-grid dehydrated meal or a mountain house or something like that, like you've got the nice package, like you pour the hot water in, it's no problem. I generally burn my hand every single time. But at least it like it's not like leaking everywhere or falling out like you seal it back up. Like what are you putting yours in like
2: individually then? So there's a bunch of different ways you can go about it. I mean you can you can pack, like, uh, an off-grid meal or a Heather's Choice or whatever food that you're comfortable with and maybe use that that bag the first night, and then for future nights, dump your homemade meal into that and use the same bag.
1: Gotcha. Or you just
2: get on Amazon and buy some of those Mylar bags.
1: Oh, okay. Basically
2: the same thing that uh, off-grid uses or whatever, and uh, you can put all your meals in there. One thing, I'm a little impatient in the evening, so a lot of times I'll just rehydrate my meal like a little bit faster so the the jet boil that I cook with it's got a really good toggle on it so I can really dial that flame down it's not like torch boil water type jet boil uh, i use that mini mo so it's got just the best throttle i mean you can get that thing down to just a light orange flame and just simmer your food and usually in about 5 minutes your food is completely rehydrated and ready to go and I do that a lot obviously you got to pack a little bit of extra fuel if you're going to go that route but it's really easy to just pick up some mylar bags on uh, on Amazon or wherever okay. and and utilize that and treat it just like a, a you know any mountain house meal or whatever
1: okay cool for me what what keeps what keeps you on the mountain besides grit
2: hmm it's a good question yeah the
0: food's important i i don't really have trouble with food or sleep too often I mean some trips I really plan out my food and other trips I'm just like this jar of peanut butter will last me four days (laughs) like no joke like I'm just like yeah the big peanut butter that'll work I'll just eat that for four days like I've just I've done some stuff you know (laughs) like I just like I don't care I don't want to think about it Um, I don't I'm trying to think of stuff like anything that um, mostly it just depends on where I'm at if I bring anything that might be a little bit different. Really, I think like having, it depends if I'm going to be doing like a lot of glassing. I like something like to be shaded sometimes. So I'll bring either a light jacket or even just like something to cover myself up in the middle of the day when I'm glassing because most mm-hmm. time it's hard to find shade and glass at the same time. Just like staying out of the sun, not getting sunburnt. Just like it, the sun beats you down because you're up high, you're at altitude like just staying out of the sun, wearing a hooded shirt, something like just a buff, like just keeping the sun off you is huge. Yeah. Cause that like the sun and the dry and the dust and the altitude that gets most people. Yeah. Like it's just, it, it is punishing. I think that's probably the most punishing part about it. It's just like, it just beats you down. So I found wearing a buff, keeping like long sleeves and like, like just keeping the sun off you
1: mm-hmm. goes a long ways. Um, yeah, man, I, I agree with that a hundred percent, you know, and, I find, uh, like you said, like a buff or oftentimes I'll wear just like a lightweight merino hoodie. And I feel like that does like double duty, too, because generally I can get it to kind of extend far enough that it kind of, uh, you know, blocks some of that side light that can come in and interfere with with my glass, you know, like, I'll kind of pull it forward a yeah. little bit just to shield the sun from not only myself, but also, like, you know, my eyes so I can glass or, like, said, a buff or a... Just, uh, like, throwing your jacket over and, like, glassing in the dark so you can just have your binos
0: on a tripod and just yeah. really focus in sometimes. And then I do, like, I, I mean, hydration stuff is big for me. I notice, like, middle, like, 3 o'clock... <laughs> You get that 3 o'clock low, I'll do like some kind of hydration. I use the Wilderness Athlete stuff to hydrate, recover. Mm-hmm. I'll even use the stuff with caffeine in the middle, like toward the end of the day just to keep my mind there. Okay. And just like stay sharp because all day of that, you, I don't know. I get I get wore down mostly by dehydration. Okay. Because um, it's August. Like, it doesn't matter where you're at. At 10,000 feet, that sun, like it just beats you down. You can be in – Wyoming, Montana. it's mostly, like, high altitude. You're above Timberline. Right. You've got, like, altitude going on. You've got all that stuff. So just, like, hydration keeps me for sure going. And then, like Ryan says, just having enough fuel, energy
1: to do what you need to do. Yeah. yeah. So speaking of hydration, right, and this is it's always a consideration that I'm thinking about, but, like, water. I generally drink it every day. But, like, when you're going into an area, like you said, it probably depends on, the area. Like, I guess that's always the answer. It depends. Like, where am I, where am I at? Where am I going? Where do I plan on going? But like, what are you looking for when finding water? Like, is it like, I'm sure sometimes maybe it's like obvious, but like, are there like less obvious spots where you can find water that maybe wouldn't be like on a map when you're aerial scouting or something like that? Or is that just stuff you got to find along the way and hope you find it or... Yeah, I mean, hope you find
0: it most of the time. Like, when you find – I bring something to carry a lot of water, too, because sometimes you'll be – even in that high country stuff, you'll be up there, you'll follow a creek up. There's, like, water, water, water. And you get to the timber line, pff, that thing's, like, underground somewhere. It's just popping out. It, it popped out at 6,500 feet, and now you're at 8,000 feet. So when I find water where that's a possibility – now, it just depends on the year, but, like, I carry it with me. I stash it. Like, I – I'll carry that extra weight cuz by the end of the day you don't even it it's gone. You know, you just yeah. like drink it and it's
2: gone and then that weight's not there. But I don't know. I mean, yeah, probably, same. This is where your like ahead of season homework comes into play, right? Hopefully you've ha- if you haven't had the ability to scout, that's real difficult, but you know and I've I've seen it where Remy was talking about, there's crick the whole way up and then it just disappears. I've also seen it where where there's there's no water and then at the head of basin there's this spring that crops up yep that's like where all the animals go to you know but i too like i don't usually risk it if i'm going in and this is especially true with mule deer you end up on some ridge usually on ridges where there's just very little access to water so i'll tend to take the weight and uh carry six liters i've got those packs. i just fill them up and if you're in doubt that you're going to find water obviously you know if you can look on a map and and see ahead of time that okay there's going to be a like a for sure creek you know four miles up the basin okay that's where I'm going to fill up but man if you're not sure it's better to kind of take it out because like you said you don't want to have to get all the way up there and then realize all right my suspicions were true there's no water here now I got to go back down to the bottom and and quit on this hunt so yeah you kind of have to uh, just Plan ahead and definitely pack water up if you're in doubt. Yep.
1: I guess if you, if you had the time, right, or if maybe you're, it's an in-state hunt. I mean, have you ever have you ever or thought about like pre-packing in water? Like you know. Oh, yeah. Yeah.
2: Absolutely. Just stash it up there. Yep. Yeah. I and unfortunately, uh, a lot of my hunts back in Washington, there was never an issue. with water everywhere. Right. Never, never had an issue with water there. But, you know, these early season hunts constantly brings me back to Nevada. So thinking about that, I just don't have the op- option or opportunity to get in there ahead of time and do the scouting and, and this and that. So if I did, I definitely would take it up, stash it. Uh, some years, you know, you're, you're fortunate and, and you can maybe glass from the bottom and uh, Nevada ridges. There's usually a road on one side or the other and you can kind of look up there and see if there are snow patches still. A lot of years you'll find, um, you know, these north-facing slopes, they still have some patches, and maybe that's going to be your water source. So pack a little extra fuel, maybe do a little snowmelt while you up there, or at least expect to get those water bladders filled up with that snow and, and let the sun do the work and melt it for you.
1: Oh, okay. Cool. Yeah. cool man. For
2: the most part, you can
0: find water, but like Ryan says, mule there have no problem dropping down 2,000, 3,000 feet and walking right back up. Right. not yeah. a big deal for a person with all your stuff dude, that sucks <laughs> you're kind of like <laughs> right. you're like that the deer are in an advantageous <laughs> spot up on this ridge i don't want to have to be going down and getting water every day right and then there's there's so many times where you might be hunting one whatever spot and you're like the water is down here, and then you realize, midway through the trip, that there was water like 400 yards on the other <laughs> side of the ridge <laughs> whatever, you
2: know? I mean, it just happens. That sure. information would have been good to know. <laughs> yeah. yeah, one of the things on Onyx, you know, it shows little springs, but you know, you kind of take that with a grain of salt. Sometimes they're there, yeah. sometimes they're not. You right. Know, you see these little, you know, the blue little dot on the map, and uh, you kind of, I always check those areas, but without 100% expectation that you're actually gonna find water there but if you are waterless up there maybe check them out.
1: Yeah. If you uh, I'm switching back to to stalking deer. If you blow if you blow a stalk, let's say you get in on a deer and you, you blow them out and you know it gets the heck out of dodge. Like is that deer kind of over at that point or will do they sometimes come back and settle down? How
2: far are they going? Do you just need to go try and find a different deer? It definitely yeah. varies. Yeah, Sometimes not, sometimes you'll get on that deer the very next day in the exact yeah. same spot. I've seen that. I think a lot of people assume that deer is gone forever, out of their lives forever, but it's not always the case, not by any stretch. There, uh, you know, sometimes, and it, again, it depends on the topography you're in. You know, if you have this nice little open spot on the top of a mountain and it's the only feed around, you could blow that deer out, but most likely, maybe it's not the next day maybe it's a couple few days that he, he'll end up back in that area and you'll get another crack at him. Yeah, it just depends where you're at. Like if you're hunting
0: more timbered stuff like Ryan was talking about, sometimes you'll blow a deer out and then you just never see him again because you just have he's not going to be in a spot where you can see him. Gotcha. He could be 300 yards away and you just don't see him again. Yeah. I mean, I I had that happen this year. Saw the one big buck, he kind of was like trotting off and then I spent 3 or 4 days looking for him, never saw him again. You know, and then I had some friends go in there, muzzleloader season, and the buck was right in there again. It's just that he was probably always there. Right. It's just, I I messed it up to a point, or, well, he just went to a place where you couldn't see him. Right. So it just depends, like, yeah, and then there's those times, like you say, I mean, I've stalked a deer, blown him out, and then the next day stalked him in the exact same spot.
2: Yeah. just Yeah, you just do not know. Yeah, I'm thinking of a Nevada hunt quite a few years ago, and, Oh, it was the first, it was like a first day deal where I found this great buck and I went in on this buck and the wind kind of busted it, had, you know, close to 50 yards. And I just couldn't get a shot. And then wind got me, screwed up, blew him out, came back the next day. He wasn't there. It was like this, this perfect little uh, bowl basin where there was kind of some short quakies and man, it was like the perfect spot, great feed in there. And, uh, you know, I really wanted to try to pick up that buck again. So the next handful of days, I was glassing the adjacent basin. I was glassing the basin that I, I messed up on, and then the next one over. And they weren't near as sexy as the one that he came from where all the feed was. And it wasn't until day six. Day six, that buck came right back, parked himself in the exact same spot, laid down in the exact same bed. And that was the day that I came back, picked him up, got down there, took a little bit different approach, and I got that buck. No way. But he ended up in the same bed just six days later. But he disappeared for the next all those days and never came in. But I'd seen him in. So. Hmm. Yeah, that happens. That's crazy.
1: Well, i tell you what, I know I've been peppering you guys with questions. I think that's about all I have uh, for for now until in about five minutes when I think of a hundred more questions that I'll probably want to ask you guys. But any any other last-minute nuggets of information you want to bestow on our listeners so they can go out and and be successful high country, early season mule deer bow hunters?
0: Hmm. (laughs) I don't know if there's anything that I, I think I've said at all. I mean now I got to find a n- new place to hunt because I th- give not too many secrets. <laughs> <of
1: it.
0: laughs> oh, you like, everyone's going to see me. They gonna be like, why is Remy's truck parked in all the flat low stuff? He was talking about running <laughs> high. I'm like, I gotcha. <laughs> uh, I'm, I'm cruising water holes. You're up on the top of the mountain. <laughs> I'm you, down in the flats. Like, because that's a whole nother, like you could talk about that too. Like there's, deer where you find them. It's like, maybe I, that's high country mule deers where I find good bucks, but that's where I'm hunting. That doesn't mean to say that there isn't great hunting in some, like I'll go to Montana or Idaho early season and I'll do most of my hunting mid mountain because that's where I'm like to hunt there. And that's where I'm finding the deer and all the guys are up at the top and I'm down at the bottom thinking, you know you can you can always alter the game. I mean, I just love being up high chasing mule deer because it's the place and it's where I'm finding deer because that's where I'm hunting. So right you know you, you could take this and say, oh, everybody could go, oh, I got to go to the top. But well, if everybody's doing that, don't go there, go somewhere else. <laughs> like that's what I would I wouldn't do that, you know <laughs> right I just like hunting up there, but there are you know, if you see a lot of guys parked at the trailhead and everybody's hiking up to the heads of the basin, dude, hunt the first mile of the trail. Because there's so many times where I, like a few years ago, I had a tag in an area. I couldn't wait to go up and I get back there and there's just dudes everywhere and people pushing deer. I was like, what is going on? I hike back to the truck and I'm like looking around and all the stuff like below, like low mountain. I'm like, oh, I'm, just, I'm so sick of this. I just went to somewhere where there was and I got into some of the best deer hunting I've ever had early season. And it was in the flats, in the, country that's like broken low country timbered whatever right no one was down there i had the run and i had like one of the best deer hunts i've ever had and, and got on some great bucks so that's another thing is like yeah we're talking about above timberline high country mule deer but that's just i have a lot of experience in there because that's where i like to hunt yeah that doesn't mean don't necessarily not look at those other places i mean i don't know how many times i've decided i too many people up here doing that, and you go down somewhere else, and you're like, okay, there's deer here too. Let's figure out these deer. Yeah, yeah. That's just, yeah, something to think about. Because if you listen to this and you're like, they said I got to go to this and do that, that's, <laughs> yeah, until you see me, until I see you up there, and then I'm going to go to something else, you know, and still do okay. Because, yeah, they're where, they're where you find them because where you're spending your time in hunting. That's where you're going to have the most success, really.
1: Yeah. No, I mean, you know, that makes a lot of sense, I think. And sometimes when you think about, or I know when I think about, you know, early, early season mule deer, just like you were talking about, like, you have that that picture of that perfect stock where the deer is bedded you know in the shade below that rock cliff there's a perfect approach like you step over the you know top and you you shoot him in his bed like when i picture early season mule deer it's that high country alpine just you know these big giant basins and you're glassing you know just red coated mule deer and and like you said but deer are definitely where you find them so thinking outside the box a little bit you know isn't going to hurt particularly
2: if there's a lot of pressure so yeah, every, every like place it. is just so different. I mean, you go back to Washington, and uh, sometimes there's just not that much. It's, it is on the bottom of the mountain, the bottom end of like an av chute or something. It's not on the top. But, uh, or southern Idaho, for example. I know guys that just lay giants down there, but they're out, they're out in the wide open desert flats. And, uh, man, there's something to be said about hunting that terrain as well. But it doesn't always have to be alpine, top of the mountain. It's just kind of what we think of when right. we think of early season stuff. Awesome. Well thanks guys. I can't thank you enough for taking the
1: time and, and divulging uh divulging all your all your secrets. So Remy, I'm sorry that you have to find a bunch of new spots now because you just gave up all the that's okay. All the good stuff. Just yeah, I'll probably they'll be like, That's the best buck I've ever seen. Where'd you get that? I was like, Oh, it was in the pivot field. <laughs> <You guys laughs> drove
2: past that's where Remy really yeah. is, right? On the edges of those pivots. <laughs>
1: no, but awesome. Well thanks guys. Well, Hope everybody enjoyed this one. Like I said, I know I did. If you uh, got any questions, definitely, or any uh, topics that you want to hear from us, please let us know. And uh, other than that, signing off. Goodbye, everybody.